Listeners, if it feels like we're spending our summer episodes on vacation out west, that's because we are. After covering Michigan cases almost exclusively, I've branched out to cover stories from all over the U.S. Our last episode, the case of Kelsey Emily Collins, that was from the Pacific Northwest. And this week's case, it takes us to North Dakota. So come with me to August 2017, when Savannah Greywind, a member of the Turtle Mountain tribe of Chippewa, daughter of parents Joe and Norberta, is expecting her first child. The life of 22-year-old Savannah Greywind revolved around her family. She loved children and helped raise her niece and nephew. After graduating Warwick High School in 2013, Savannah attended North Dakota State University, where she became a certified nursing assistant. After college, Savannah began working at Eventide Nursing Home. A natural caretaker, Savannah loved her job and the connection she made with the residents she cared for. Savannah met her boyfriend, Ashton, when they were in high school. When the couple found out they were having a girl, they decided to name her Hazley Joe. Hazley means survivor, and Joe is in honor of Savannah's father. Savannah lived with her parents in their Fargo apartment, but had plans to move into an apartment with Ashton. They weren't moving far, just across the street, so they could continue to have the family support as they moved into this new phase of their lives. In Savannah's culture, family has special and meaningful roles during and after the arrival of the baby, and having everyone close by would mean those roles could be fulfilled. On August 19, 2017, Savannah, who is eight months pregnant, was at her Ninth Street apartment. Now, there are two versions of what happened. One is that about 1.20 p.m., Savannah was home by herself and texted her mom that she had ordered a pizza followed quickly by another text to say that she was heading up to apartment 5 to help their neighbor, Brooke Cruz, with a sewing project. The second version is that the Greywinds were home and had the front door open, doing some cleaning, when Brooke poked her head in and asked Savannah to come upstairs to her apartment and help with the sewing project. Brooke offered Savannah $20 in exchange for some assistance with the project. And this was not the first time that Brooke had tried to get Savannah to go up to the apartment with her. But this time, Savannah said that yes, she would help out, and followed Brooke up the stairs to the next floor of the small apartment building. Brooke Cruz was born Brooklyn Doolin on July 4, 1979. Originally from Illinois, Brooke grew up in Florida with her dad, who allowed her more freedoms and less supervision than her mother. She went to Dixie Hollins High School, and at some point, Brooke moved to Minnesota to attend Minnesota State University where she studied psychology and maintained a 3.5 grade point average. However, as Brooke never got her master's degree, she was not able to work as a psychologist. Brooke, she liked to write. She was obsessed with serial killers, zombies, evolution, and Amazonians, and her fiction works reflected her interests. Brooke also struggled to hold down a job and worked in a series of low-paying, unskilled jobs to make ends meet. While she hoped to one day be a psychologist working with people with developmental disabilities, she would never achieve that goal. Brooke was also a teen mother, having her first baby in 1993 when she was 14 years old. She had six more children before she had her tubes tied in the mid-2000s. None of these children were in her custody for very long, and she owed tens of thousands of dollars in back child support. 
Brooke had a criminal record, and that started when she was 23 years old. She was caught writing bad checks in Missouri and was sentenced to probation. She would be jailed for violating her parole and later fined over another bad check. In 2011, she was arrested after attacking her ex-husband with a knife. And when it came to relationships, Brooke, well, she had a pattern. She kept detailed journals, and they show how relationships would start out wonderful and then turn sour within weeks. Brooke had children with some of these men, and she would often leave the children with their fathers after the birth. In most cases, she had little to no contact with the men or her children once the relationship was over. In 2006, Brooke married a man named Carl Cruz. She worked as an administrative assistant for his business, and the pair had two children together. Their marriage lasted three years before Brooke left to resume a relationship with an old boyfriend. After the divorce was final, the children stayed in the primary custody of their father. Brooke went on this way until 2011 when she met a man online. The man, Andrew, he lived in New South Wales, Australia, and Brooke made plans to visit with him at the end of 2011. What started out as a 30-day vacation turned into a permanent move for Brooke, who had fallen in love. Brooke and Andrew married in 2012, but the marriage was over before the honeymoon was. After six days, Brooke and Andrew were separated, and Brooke scrambled to apply for a different visa so she could stay in Australia. After her work visa was denied, Brooke had no choice but to move back to the U.S. in October of 2012. While on a bus one day, Brooke met William Hohen, and in 2013, they began a relationship. This relationship had huge highs followed by violent and terrifying lows, and the police were called on multiple occasions over the next three years. In 2016, after William pushed her into a bathtub, Brooke filed for a no-contact order. However, the pair later reconciled and started dating again. Just like Brooke, William had an unstable upbringing and early adulthood. He was born William Henry Hohen in 1985. In 1988, his parents divorced and he was bounced between two houses. His mother moved to Texas while his father stayed in North Dakota. William started getting in trouble with the law. He was in juvenile detention as a teenager. In 2011, William sued his parents for child support and won. Between them, his parents were ordered to pay William almost $4,000, which allowed him to support himself for a while. William's run-ins with the law didn't end with his stint in juvenile detention. Between 2004 and 2011, he was caught multiple times driving without a license or without insurance. William was married twice and had two children, one born in 2003 and the other in 2010. In 2011, William was charged with fracturing his infant son's skull after he was taken to the hospital with swelling by his ear. He entered an Alford plea for the charge and spent a short time in prison, then was released with two years probation. Later that same year, William was charged with possession of drug paraphernalia and was sentenced to probation for another year. His record stayed clean for years after these arrests until 2016 when he was charged with assault after he pushed Brooke into a bathtub. For the assault, he was given probation and a fine which he was allowed to pay in monthly installments. In December of 2016, Brooke wanted to rekindle her relationship with William. She thought that since he wanted another child, a pregnancy would convince him to come back to her. So she sent him an email telling him that she was pregnant and he was the father. 
She attached photos of a sonogram and a positive pregnancy test as proof using photos she'd taken during her last pregnancy. She even found an audio file of a baby's heartbeat online and sent that as additional proof. At this point, Brooke said she had convinced herself that she was actually pregnant. Her meticulous journals became pregnancy diaries that listed all of her symptoms, and she also described how her body was changing with the pregnancy. She told her friends that she was pregnant and appeared to be preparing for a baby. Listeners, her internet searches, they tell a different story. They show searches for how to get pregnant with tied tubes, how to make a noose, Moses basket for baby, North Dakota missing persons laws, Sodder children disappearance, Beaumont children disappearance, how do I register my baby's birth after home delivery in North Dakota, and if a pregnant mother dies, how long until the baby dies. This is really disturbing stuff. In August of 2017, Brooke and William were arguing when Brooke told William he needed to prepare himself in case there were issues with the birth. This is when William realized there was no baby. Even though he'd been telling people for months about the pregnancy, well, he said that Brooke had to produce a baby because so many people, both his friends and hers, thought that she was pregnant. He told Brooke about Savannah, who was really pregnant, and Brooke decided this meant William wanted her to take Savannah's baby. After this argument, the internet search history showed that someone searched, how long does it take to pass out from not breathing, and also searched for how a mother's breathing affects the baby. Brooke Cruz is trying to hold on to her man, and she thinks that a baby, his baby, is the only way to do it. Desperate to save her relationship, Brooke started to plan. She set her sights on her heavily pregnant neighbor, Savannah Greywind, and researched how she could steal Savannah's baby and pass the child off as her own. Brooke invited Savannah up to her apartment under the guise of needing help with a project, and an unsuspecting Savannah agreed to go with her. Savannah hadn't been in the apartment long when Brooke picked a fight with her, accusing Savannah of intercepting her mail and mistreating her cat. Brooke and Savannah argued, and then things turned physical with Brooke knocking Savannah to the floor. When Savannah went down, Brooke acted quickly to perform a home C-section on the bathroom floor. Brooke took a small blade, either a carpenter's knife or a box cutter, and started cutting Savannah open from one hip to the other. When Savannah drifted back into consciousness, Brooke pinned her down with one arm while she continued cutting with the other. The baby was successfully delivered. Miraculously, the baby was unharmed. Brooke wrapped the baby in a towel and placed her in the bathtub while Savannah bled out onto the bathroom floor. Savannah's mother, Norberta, texted her at 2.33. She was home and wondering if Savannah was still able to take her brother to work. When Noberta didn't get a reply, she sent Savannah's brother up to Brooke's apartment to see if she was still there, thinking that maybe Savannah lost track of time and wasn't aware that she was late for taking her brother to work. But there was no answer at Brooke's apartment, which was odd because Norberta had seen Brooke's husband, William, arrive home as she was sending the text to Savannah. When William arrived home to his apartment he shared with Brooke, he made his way to the bathroom but couldn't open the door. Savannah's body made that impossible. Once Brooke moved Savannah's body enough so William could get in, 
he saw a bloody savanna on the floor and a newborn baby in the tub. He asked Brooke, is she dead? And when Brooke said she wasn't sure, he got a rope and made a garrote. He returned to the bathroom and strangled Savannah's body until he was sure she was dead. Then he started to clean up the evidence. They wrapped Savannah's body and hid it in the bathroom closet. The bloody rags and towels that were used to crudely clean up during the attack were thrown in a trash bag. Brooke got into the shower and William helped her to rinse off the blood and fluids that splattered her in the attack. With the obvious evidence hidden, Brooke got to work with the disinfectant, cleaning the bathroom five times. She even used a toothbrush in some places, paying particular attention to corners, edges, and those spots that are often missed while cleaning. She didn't want to leave any evidence in the bathroom that could link back to Savannah. When Savannah's mother arrived home from taking her son to work, Savannah still wasn't back and Norberta began to worry. She raced up the stairs and knocked on Brooke's door, and this time there was an answer. Brooke said that Savannah had left and she didn't know where she was. Panicked, Norberta called the police and Savannah Greywind became a missing person. Police arrived at the Greywind apartment around 5 p.m., and after finding out that Savannah's last known location was Brooke and William's apartment, they knocked on the door and asked permission to conduct a search. Nothing was found, and the police left. Another search was conducted that night at 10 p.m., and again, police are searching, but they can't open anything. They can't look in closets or cabinets. They can't look under the bed, only seeing things that are in plain sight. While Brooke appeared open to the first search at 5 p.m., she objected to the second 10 p.m. search. Without a warrant, police had limited powers, so they had no idea that the woman they were searching for was hidden in the bathroom closet just feet away from where they stood. Once police left, William, who was hiding in bed with the baby, he hollowed out his dresser enough to fit Savannah's body inside. He wrapped Savannah in towels and sheets and then a layer of garbage bags and stuffed her into the opening. It's just horrifying what they did to her. The next day, missing persons posters were printed and plastered around the neighborhood. Along with a photo, there was a short description of her disappearance as well as her height, five foot four, and Savannah's features, black hair, green eyes, and a tattoo on her foot that read, Too Beautiful for This Earth. A $7,000 reward was offered for information leading to the location of Savannah. And listeners, the search for Savannah Greywind was massive. Family members and volunteers combed the area, knowing that without her car and her wallet, which were still at the apartment, she couldn't have gone very far. In addition to the huge volunteer effort, the police threw every resource they could at her search. There were over 40 officers along with dog units, cadaver dogs, and a tracking dog that was specially trained to locate placenta. They did searches both by air and water. A tip line was set up and quickly flooded with over 150 calls from concerned members of the public. One tip was from a neighbor who lived in the apartment building. This neighbor said they heard banging on their ceiling that lasted around 10 to 20 minutes. They knew the layout of the apartment above theirs, and they were confident that the banging was coming from the bathroom. Once the banging stopped, the shower started. On August 20th, police searched Brooks' apartment for a third time. The Greywind family had told police that it was possible for a panel in the bathroom to be moved, revealing an empty cavity. The cavity was large enough to hide a person. Little did they know that as they searched, Savannah was hidden in a dresser that was sitting in plain sight. 
But once again, the lack of warrant meant that police were unable to move or open anything, and they left the apartment empty-handed. While one group of police were searching, another group was questioning all of the people involved in Savannah's life, including her boyfriend, Ashton. While he was never named a suspect, suspicion often falls on the significant other, and this case was no different. After two days of questioning and investigations, police determined that Ashton was not a suspect, and they moved on with their investigation. In the days following, while the attention was briefly off of Brooke and William, They took the hollowed-out dresser with Savannah inside from the apartment and put it in the back of their Jeep. William then drove to the Red River, where he removed Savannah's body and threw her in the current. He returned to the apartment, and Brooke barricaded the three of the men. Brooke was terrified that someone would find out about the baby, and she stayed inside as much as possible. On a rare trip out of the apartment, William was pulled over and arrested on an outstanding warrant. He had missed one of his monthly payments he was making toward his fine. Brooke was in the car with him, and she had the baby in a bag. When William was arrested, she walked home with the baby still in the bag and waited for him to return. Prior to his arrest, while Brooke was holed up in the apartment, William was still going to work, stopping to pick up baby supplies such as diapers and formula on the way home. William was openly talking about the arrival of baby Phoenix to his co-workers. When police were informed of his baby supply purchases and his conversations with co-workers, the North Dakota Bureau of Investigation went back to search the apartment. This time, they had enough for a warrant, and they were able to complete a thorough search. On August 24th, five days after Savannah was murdered, police found Brooke in bed with a newborn baby. Brooke was immediately arrested and taken to the station, and a car was dispatched to William's workplace to arrest him. The baby was taken by ambulance to the nearby Sanford Children's Hospital, where she was checked over and given a clean bill of health. Aside from being slightly premature and on the small side at only four pounds, she was healthy. Once given the all-clear, social services took the baby girl into their custody until DNA tests could prove that this was definitely Savannah's baby. Police continued their search of Brooke and William's apartment, but there was very little physical evidence to be found. Brooke had cleaned and cleaned, leaving little to no blood or tissue evidence behind, and William had thrown Savannah's body into the river three days earlier. Police turned their attention to the electronic devices in the house. The search history showed months of preparation leading up to the day Savannah was reported missing. Brooke's journals provided more evidence for police, as well as the ones Brooke used to give daily updates on her imagined pregnancy Police found lists of equipment needed to perform an at-home C-section, as well as detailed plans of how the procedure would go. There were notes about how far along a pregnancy needed to be for the baby to be delivered well and able to survive. William and Brooke were both interviewed once they arrived at the police station. In William's initial statement, he recounted the afternoon of August 19th, saying he got home from work around 2.30 to find Brooke in the bathroom cleaning up blood. Brooke showed him the baby and said it was their baby and they were a family, and William helped clean up and dispose of the bloody towels and rags. He said he put his bloody shoes into the trash bag of towels and threw it away in a dumpster behind an apartment building in West Fargo. Later, when asked about Savannah, William said he'd only met her once or twice, but he really didn't know much about her. It wasn't until later that William admitted to the role he played in Savannah's death and the disposal of her body. 
According to Brooke's statement, Savannah wanted to leave her boyfriend and baby and start a new life, and she had come to Brooke for help with starting her labor early. Once Brooke told her how to break her own water, Savannah left. Two days later, Savannah came to Brooke's apartment with the baby and gave the baby to Brooke. Brooke admitted to taking advantage of Savannah in order to obtain the baby, but she denied any other involvement. Brooke refused to cooperate further with police after admitting that the baby was Savannah's. In a later interview, she told police she had miscarried her pregnancy and the fetus was still inside of her. Law enforcement had mountains of evidence and statements proving that Brooke and William had been involved in Savannah's disappearance, but they were still missing one key component, Savannah's body. Knowing that Brooke and William had used their Jeep to move Savannah from the apartment, they appealed to the public to come forward with sightings of the vehicle, a brown 1996 Grand Cherokee with Minnesota plates. They asked for abandoned buildings on properties to be checked, for landlords to check their vacant properties, and for everyone to check that nothing extra was added to their trash. It was August 27th, around 6 p.m., when kayakers on the Red River noticed something that looked like a body wrapped in plastic and duct tape hung up on a log near the 90th Avenue Northwest Bridge on the North Dakota-Minnesota border. They called police to report what they'd seen. Police determined it would be easier to retrieve the body from the Minnesota side, and at 8.20 p.m., the body was pulled onto the banks of the river. Wrapped in plastic and duct tape, the rope used to strangle her still around her neck, they unwrapped the body of Savannah Greywind. The next day, Brooke and William were formally charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping, conspiracy to commit murder, and giving false information to law enforcement. Their bond was set at $2 million cash each. Not surprisingly, the couple broke up before they went to trial. With the body of Savannah located and her killers in jail, her family began the heartbreaking task of planning her funeral. DNA testing proved the baby found in Brooke and William's apartment was Savannah and Ashton's daughter, and Ashton took custody of the baby just before the funeral. On September 7, 2017, Savannah's family, boyfriend, daughter, and 1,000 mourners paid their respects. Attendees wore red shirts in honor of not just Savannah, but all missing and murdered indigenous women. Savannah's casket was transported by a horse-drawn carriage and was followed by ten horses. One horse didn't have a rider to symbolize Savannah. Traditional indigenous songs and tributes were woven throughout her ceremony. The legal proceedings against Brooke and William were held in the Cass County District Court. Savannah's family objected to this. They believed the trial should happen in federal court due to Savannah's indigenous background. Brooke pled not guilty. After reviewing the evidence against her, she changed her plea to guilty on December 11, 2017. And on February 2, 2018, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the conspiracy to commit murder charge. She received an additional 20 years for the conspiracy to kidnap charge and 163 days for giving false information to law enforcement. Brooke never appealed her sentence. William, he entered a guilty plea for the kidnapping and giving false information to law enforcement charges and a not guilty plea for the conspiracy to commit murder charges on September 4, 2018. At trial, the prosecutors for the state argued that William made Brooke think she had to get a baby, so she decided to take Savannah's. They also argued that Brooke was not able to restrain Savannah, remove the baby from her body, and kill her by herself, 
so William must have helped her in this process. They suggested that William held the rope around Savannah's neck while Brooke cut the baby out of her. The defense argued that William didn't know about Brooke's plan until Savannah was already dead, and you can't conspire to murder someone who's already died. William was presented as a boyfriend who was deceived by his lover into covering up a murder. Witness testimony was important in William's trial. Brooke took the stand to give crucial details. She testified that she began faking her pregnancy because she thought it would keep William in the relationship. She admitted that, yeah, she had shown him fake sonograms, and in an effort to convince William of her pregnancy, she convinced herself that she was pregnant. Brooke walked the jury through the events of August 19th, saying that she asked Savannah up to the apartment with the sole purpose of taking the baby. She said she started an argument and pushed Savannah so hard she fell and hit her head on the sink. However, autopsy results, they show no head injuries. Brooke then recounted William getting home after the baby was born and how he had used the rope to ensure Savannah was dead before helping her clean up the mess. On the stand, Brooke said she was remorseful, that she never intended to kill Savannah. She asked William multiple times if she should just take the baby to the Grey Wind's apartment, but he said, no, don't do that. Brooke also testified that William shared fantasies that he had about drugging, raping, and strangling women. Brooke said William liked to choke her with ropes during sex, which was backed up by the testimony of William's ex-fiancée, Tanith. She said William asked to choke her during sex as well. Tanith's testimony included information about their relationship and how they stayed friendly after they broke up. She testified that she confronted William about Brooke's pregnancy early on. They both knew that Brooke had her tubes tied and couldn't get pregnant, but William brushed her off and changed the subject. The ex-fiancé put this down to a man who was too trusting. Tanith visited William in jail where he told her he made some bad choices while trying to help Brooke. Tanith also said William was a racist and he made inappropriate remarks about indigenous people. Both William and Brooke's cellmates testified. Brooke's cellmate had multiple false information charges and her testimony about Brooke's jail cell confession was not thought to be credible. William's cellmate, a guy named Brian, he told the court how William admitted to hollowing out the dresser to hide Savannah's body and then moving the dresser to the Jeep so he could dispose of the body. He went on to say that William never admitted to helping with the murder. He only confessed to events after the murder. Brian spoke about a conversation he had with William about Brian's ex-girlfriend's abortion. William told Brian he would have just cut the baby out. Testimony from the medical examiner who performed the autopsy provided a lot of insight. Savannah's cause of death was listed as homicidal violence from either the blood loss or the strangulation. However, due to the lack of tissue and bone damage in Savannah's neck, his expert opinion was that she died from blood loss. He noted the large wound in her abdomen, which didn't show any signs of effort made to stop the loss of blood. There was no evidence of a head wound, contrary to Brooke's statement, and no sign of any anesthetic being used. He said that Savannah likely took up to 45 minutes to die from the blood loss associated with her injuries. Savannah's parents and boyfriend gave statements to the court. Ashton spoke of his beloved girlfriend whose protective family weren't sure of him at first, but warmed up and made him part of their lives. He spoke of Savannah wanting to be a mother and have a baby and him being unsure at first, but he agreed to try for a baby and then he was thrilled when Savannah became pregnant. 
Joe Graywin testified that his daughter was denied the culturally significant birth she was planning, where the mother or grandmother is the first person to touch the baby. Finally, William took the stand in his own defense. He spoke about meeting Brooke and their turbulent relationship. He said he thought, when he saw the baby, that his dream of having a baby had come true, only to be quickly shattered by the sight of a bloody savanna on the bathroom floor. He said he asked Brooke, was she even pregnant? And she said that she thought so, so he decided to help her clean up and move the body into the dresser and then to the Red River. After closing arguments on September 27th, the jury deliberated for an hour before adjourning for the day. They spent a full day on the 28th deliberating before delivering a verdict at 4 p.m. They found that William was not guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. Before sentencing for the kidnapping charge and the false information to law enforcement charge William pled guilty to, a bifurcated hearing was held to determine if William could be classed as a dangerous special offender. You see, a judge can sentence a dangerous special offender to much longer prison time. William waived his right to a jury and let the court make the determination. The court found that William met the criteria for a dangerous special offender, which meant that at sentencing held immediately after, he received a life sentence for the conspiracy to kidnap charge instead of the non-dangerous offender maximum, which was 20 years. In addition to the life sentence, he received the maximum sentence for the charge of giving false information to the police, which is 360 days in prison. In March of 2019, William was moved to an out-of-state prison for protective management reasons. William appealed his designation as a dangerous special offender. He also appealed on the grounds that he was not properly informed of the sentencing ramifications when he pled guilty, as well as a couple of other points. In September 2019, William's life sentence was thrown out by the North Dakota Supreme Court because he should not have been classified as a dangerous special offender. In October of 2019, William was sentenced to 20 years in prison for conspiracy to kidnap and one year for giving false information to police. These sentences would be served concurrently, and he received credit for the days he'd already served in prison. Brooke is serving her time at Dakota Women's Correctional and Rehabilitation Center in New England, North Dakota. She is reportedly in therapy and taking medication. Baby Hazley, Joe, and Ashton, they live in Fargo with Ashton's fiancé. Hazley Joe is thriving, and Ashton is attending college, pursuing a degree in business administration. Savannah's act was introduced in Congress on October 5, 2017, by Democratic North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp. According to the Congressional website, this bill requires the Department of Justice to update the online data entry format for federal databases relevant to cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people to include a new data field for users to input the victim's tribal enrollment, information, or affiliation. The Act passed through the Senate unanimously on December 7, 2018, but the Act was not passed before the new Congress term began, which meant that it had to be reintroduced in the new term. The bill was reintroduced on January 25, 2019, by Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski. The act was considered by the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs on June 19, 2019, and the bill was enacted on October 10, 2020. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray and written by Jessica Ann. Audio editing by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, and I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs> <laughs>